attention to. One is our communication card. Hopefully you were handed one of these when you walked in today. Whether you're a first-time guest or whether you've been here a thousand times, not that anyone's been here that many times, but we just want you to fill this out. Um, and during the sermon, uh, as, uh, as maybe something speaks to you and you're like, I want to try to apply this to my life, we want to encourage you to jot that down onto the side. And then when we pass the offering plates at the end of the service, drop that in. It gives us a way to connect with you, to follow up and see um, how God might be at work in your life. Uh, next thing is, uh, if you are on Facebook, I want to encourage you to pull out your phone right now uh, and check in at Mosaic Baptist Church. We're doing a campaign in the month of May. If we get 100 check-ins uh, at Mosaic, we're going to donate $100 to the Father's Heart uh, Soup Kitchen uh, in Manhattan. They serve between six to 800 uh, homeless and, and um, impoverished folks uh, every weekend. Uh, and a number of our members have volunteered there. So I want to encourage you to check in. Uh, this does two things. One, it helps us to contribute to a good cause to serve those uh, at the margins of, of society. And two, it also helps us to spread uh, the word about Mosaic uh, on Facebook. So I want to encourage you um, to check in. Lastly, um, today is my wife's birthday. And I wanted to sing happy birthday to her. She is working in the nursery right now. Um, so, so everybody turn around and look at Sonia. All right. All right. So let's sing. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Sonia. Happy birthday to you. Awesome. Thank you guys for helping me to, uh, Express my love to my wife. Uh, so we are in uh, the book of Ephesians today. We are continuing our series. We have two sermons left in our series through uh, the book of Ephesians. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to be transitioning to a series in the book of Jonah that Pastor Woodley will be kicking off for us soon. Uh, but I want to preach to you today on spirit-filled relationships. Spirit-filled relationships. <clears throat> we're in Ephesians chapter uh, five. We're going to cover verses 22 through the end of that chapter. Then we're going to cover the first nine verses of Ephesians chapter six. I appreciate your patience today. I'm, uh, I'm going to be chugging on this water as we go along. I've got bronchitis. So um, I may need to just keep doing that throughout the sermon. So thanks for working with me. Spirit-filled uh, relationships, Ephesians 5, 22 uh, to 6. Nine. But before we read the text, I've got some pictures on screen that I'd like to like to discuss momentarily. All right. So <clears throat> these three pictures are evidence of non spirit filled relationships. So up here in the corner, we have a husband and wife arguing. And have you ever done anything like that? I'm not saying come to blows or anything, but just like an argument, right? Some of you have been there, uh, done that. This is a mother and her daughter, and you can tell they're having a disagreement. They're having one of those discussions that moms sometimes have uh, with their teenage daughters, right? I told you not to do this. Why are you doing it anyway? Then this big picture in the center is a little bit harder to decipher, but this is a protest uh, down in South Brooklyn uh, in the Bay Ridge area about, uh, I think about six weeks ago, uh, a protest surrounding... Uh, the wrongful death of uh, Mr. Gurley uh, and uh, the NYPD officer, Peter Lang, who shot him. So, <clears throat> so this protest is primarily of Asian Americans 
feeling that Peter Lang has been wronged by the criminal justice system. So they were protesting. This is down by near where Mark and Misty live. Now, I'm not trying to get you to take a particular side on that protest or on that issue. I believe thoughtful Christians can land on different sides of that perspective. But what I think each of these pictures symbolizes is the fact that there is something wrong in society where we have fractured and broken relationships. Relationships that are not governed by the Holy Spirit, and because they are not, they produce conflict. So we have husbands and wives at odds. We have parents and children at odds. And we have society tearing itself apart. Because we are not governed by the Holy Spirit of God. Here's the big idea of this passage. If you walk away and you can only hold on to one thing, hold on to this. Our relationships must be spirit-filled. Our relationships must be spirit-filled. Now you might be saying, Stephen, you keep tossing around this phrase, spirit-filled. Why do you keep using this? Well, last week when we preached the first part of Ephesians chapter 5, it climaxed by explaining that God has called every single Christian, every single participant in the church to live under the authority of the Holy Spirit. He's what Christians call the third person of the Trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, existing from eternity past as co-equal members of this thing that the Christians call the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is to govern each one of us. And we talked about how there was this, um, there was this uh, god from Greek mythology called Dionysius, who was the god of wine. And so people would, would, uh, they would get drunk. And then they would offer themselves up to Dionysius in ancient Greek culture. And Paul was writing and speaking to this particular group of Christians who had come out of that background, who, who lived in the midst of a city that practiced this sort of behavior. And he said, no, don't be drunk with wine and be consumed by, by the forces of darkness. Instead, be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And then he begins to describe what it looks like when we are filled by the Holy Spirit of God. He said, well, we'll sing. We'll, we'll build one another up through word and through song. We'll encourage one another. We will submit to one another. And then the, the rest of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six dive deeper to explain what that looks like for us to have spirit-filled relationships. The title of this series is One in Christ, right? So all the way along, we've been talking about unity in the church for the sake of the gospel. So what Paul does here is he applies it directly to a particular series of relationships. So let's look at the first one. The first relationship that uh, Paul discusses is that of husbands and wives. Now, I know some of you, right off the bat, you might say, well, all right, I can go to sleep now because I'm not married. I'm not a husband. I'm not a wife. And so you may think that you get a pass on this. But let me, let me encourage you. Maybe you think that one day you are going to be married. You are going to have a husband or a wife. This kind of passage is going to be crucial to you. Or maybe you think, ah, I've been there, done that. I'm not going to do it again. I'm not getting married ever again. But you still have a responsibility as a member of the family of God to help those who are younger than you, who are walking in that path, to help speak truth into their lives so that they can walk along this journey to have a spirit-filled relationship in their marriage. So this sermon is for all of us, single and married. All right? So, verse 22. Paul says, and the word should be up here on the screen, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So Paul dives into this discussion. He says, all right, let's, let's keep it 100, right? Let's, let's make this real. Let's make it practical. He's been waxing eloquent for four and a half chapters now about the beauties and the mysteries of Christ and the church and what, what Jesus has done to, to bring us all together into this family of God, what Paul called the household of God in Ephesians chapter 2, how he tore down this, this wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, and he got us all under the same roof, as it were. He got us all into the same family. But Paul said, now that we're all together, and now that we come from every walk of life and every culture you can imagine, it, and everything's kind of messy and messed up because the church, right, is a hospital it's not a, not a place of perfection. So Paul says, now that we've got all of these fractured relationships, all of these messy and chaotic situations within the church, let's apply it to real life. Because theory sounds great, right? But the devil is in the details. So Paul said, let's talk about some of those details. So he begins to talk about husband and wife unity for the sake of the gospel in the local church. Uh, I got a list up here of things that married people fight over. They fight over uh, where to eat. Has this ever happened to you? Uh, you're like, so where do you want to go out uh, for dinner? Oh, I don't know. Where do you want to go out for dinner? Oh, I don't know. Where do you want to go out for dinner? And then you pick somewhere and then your spouse is like, I didn't want to go there. Um, has that ever happened? All right. Emily said yes, so we know what happens in your life, Tyson. Um, we fight over where to eat, um, directions, um, what movie to watch, which way to roll the toilet paper, right? You roll it this way or do you roll it that way? This is a really big deal uh, for couples. Spending money, uh, other than infidelity in marriage, family finances are the number one cause of divorce uh, in America. Couples fight over sex. Parenting decisions, and this is a big one, staying on your own side of the bed. Uh, there's an invisible line that you are not supposed to cross, right? You don't cross that line. This is my side, and this is your side. Couples fight about all this kind of stuff. I don't know what they fought about in first century Ephesus, this group that Paul was writing this letter to. I'm not sure what they had beef about, all right? But you could be sure they had beef about something. And so Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to them about how to have spirit-filled relationships, relationships that are governed by the Holy Spirit of God, and as such, are salt and light in the midst of a countercultural community. And the city of Ephesus looks at it, and they're like, 
That is so different than what we do. That is so foreign from the way that we live. And so Paul really drops the bombshell. He's like, here is how you are to live. As husbands and wives, here's how to have a spirit-filled relationship. And there are really two commands in these several verses that we just read. The first is that wives are to submit to husbands, right? Wives submit to husbands. Let's go back to verse 22. Now, I know some of you may be struggling with this, and I get that uh, if, you are, if you are struggling with that. But let's take a look at what Paul said, because I'm not making stuff up. This is in the Bible. Paul said, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So wives, Paul said, are supposed to submit to their husbands. Now, um, if we were to take a poll on what the word submit means, we might come up with some different answers, but they would probably all relate somewhere to the idea of following the leadership of somebody else, right? Uh, As Americans, we submit to the authority of our president, right? We submit to President Barack Obama because we have elected him to represent us. So we follow his leadership. When you're at work, you may not like your boss. You may not like uh, the rules that he or she has for you. But you know that in order to have a good relationship, in order to keep your job, in order to pay the bills, you've got to submit to the man, right? Or the woman, whoever the case may be, at work. We all basically know what it means to submit. It means to follow the leadership of someone else. But the problem is uh, that it's frequently raised to this idea is that of equality, right? And here at Mosaic, we have talked a lot about justice. We have talked a lot about equality. We've talked about discrimination. And the issue can very quickly be raised here. Well, Stephen, it seems like this is an issue of equality. Because if God is saying that husbands are to lead their homes... That the man is supposed to be in charge of his family. That this is an issue of equality. But I think that that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the roles that God has created for us. Because the New Testament is crystal clear. That men and women both have equal value and equal worth to God. We've spent a lot of time talking about this doctrine that we call the Imago Dei. The image of God. That every single person is made in the image of God and therefore has intrinsic worth and value. And it specifically says, back in Genesis chapter 1, when God uh, creates humanity in his image, he says that his image is both male and female. That men and women together are representing our good God. So it's not a matter of equality. It's a matter of different roles. Because if we go back to the illustration about you at work, right? You may have to submit to your boss, but it doesn't mean that you're less of a person than he or she is, right? They just have a different role than you do. Grace owns a restaurant. She has several employees. Her employees are not less valuable as a person than she is, but she is the boss and what she says has to go, right? Okay. That doesn't mean that the other people are not her equals as far as personhood, as far as worth, as far as value in the eyes of God. Everybody tracking with me? All right. So Paul says to wives, here's what you are supposed to do. You are to submit to the leadership of your husband. This is not a blanket call for all women everywhere to submit to men. 
It's very specific. Wives with husbands. Wives with husbands. So if you're dating, uh, this doesn't apply to you. You don't have to. If your boyfriend tells you, hey, you got to submit to me because it's in the Bible. You should run from him because that's not in the Bible. He may want you to do that, but that would be wrong. All right. The scripture makes it very clear that there is something very special about entering into this sacred and special covenant that we call marriage. And it commits us to a lifetime of service to one another. We come together as equal persons. We come together with equal worth and value. But you have a role and you have a role. And we experience the most joy and pleasure and fulfillment in marriage when we embrace the role that God has designed us for. So Paul says to the wives, submit to your husbands just as you do to the Lord. And then he gives an analogy to help us understand it. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. The Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ, and it's a beautiful, glorious picture and Jesus is preparing his bride. That's us. We're flawed. We're sinful. We got all kinds of spots and blemishes, but Jesus is cleaning us up. And at the end of days, he's going to present his bride to himself. And it's going to be amazing. But the church, would we not agree, is supposed to obey our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we do or what we're trying to do? however imperfectly we may. That's the analogy that, that Paul brings out to say, just as the church is supposed to submit to Jesus, so wives are supposed to submit to the leadership of their husbands. Everybody tracking with me? Hanging in there? All right. Now, we'll talk a little bit about that some more, but first let's go to what the husband's responsibility is. Because for each one of these relationships, Paul speaks to both parties involved, right? First, he speaks to the wives. Then he speaks to the husbands. And the responsibility that husbands have in this relationship is to love their wives. So wives are supposed to submit to their husbands and husbands are supposed to love their wives. Look at verse 25. Paul said, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. It's interesting that in both of these examples, Jesus is the one who is summoned up as the perfect illustration, right? Jesus is brought into the equation, which makes sense because as Christians, we're all about imitating Jesus, right? So, so Paul said, okay, husbands, here's what you have to do. Here is your privilege. Here is your responsibility. You get to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Now, how did Christ love the church? Well, the second line there says that he gave himself up for her. How did he do that? How did he do that, church? How did he give himself up? You can answer here. He died on the cross. He gives the ultimate sacrifice. You don't do that unless you love, right? Jesus loved his bride. He loved the world and he's summoning his bride out of that world. And Ephesians says that he lays down his life for that which he loves. It's impossible to love more than that. Would you not agree? Paul said, husbands, love your wives like that. Lay down your 
lives for your wife. Sacrifice, love, die on their behalf. This is a tall order. And he begins to describe how, how Jesus is cleaning up the church and Jesus is making her holy and Jesus is preparing his bride for the end of days. And he says, love your wife like that, like that. Now, like we talked about last week, this is a tall order. This is, in fact, an impossible order. For what wife is always going to be able to follow the leadership of her husband, especially if he's wrong, right? That would grate at you. And then what husband is always going to be able to love his wife like that? I mean, we might say, oh, yeah, sure, I love my wife. But like that? Like Jesus laid down his life for the church? That kind of love? This is what we are called to. This is what we are summoned to. And it is an impossible order. That's why this is a further description of the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like to walk in love, to walk in the light, to be filled by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit governs our relationships, we are able to do the supernatural. Which in the context of marriage is following the leadership of your husband and loving your wife. Now, I want to compare this, and we're going to do this with each of our three points today. We're going to compare this with the way that things operated in first century Ephesus. So I should have a picture up here on the screen. Um, I want to highlight a couple of ways in which what Paul and Jesus are calling the church to do was counter-cultural. So back then, the Greeks and the Romans dominated culture, right? So they had this thing called Greco-Roman culture. And in the first century, Greco-Roman culture kind of prevailed all over the Mediterranean world where, where Ephesus was and where Paul was living and where Jesus ministered. And here's how things were back then. Fathers had ultimate authority over their daughters. Ultimate authority over their daughters. So much so that even when she was married, the father still had authority over his daughter. She might be 47 and have been happily married for 25 years. She might have three kids. But the father in Greco-Roman culture was still in charge of her. And he could summon her at his whim. He could, he could maybe divorce her. He could do all kinds of things. Because he was the ultimate authority. What Paul is saying in this passage, and if we're not careful, we'll miss it. What Paul is saying is so incredibly counter-cultural. Because in the city of Ephesus, the fathers ruled over a woman until her death. Paul said, no. In God's new order, that's not how it works. When you enter into the covenant of marriage, you are under the safety and the protection and the leadership of your husband. You have started a new family and what God has joined together. Let no man separate, not even your father. What Paul is doing is sending a shot across the bow of Greco-Roman culture. He's telling the church in the city of Ephesus, you don't have to live like that anymore. You live by a counter-cultural set of values and assumptions. And this is not the way that we do things. Because God, from the beginning, has created the male and female. And he's brought them together to be one in marriage. So Paul, and, and we kind of, because we don't know the background of texts like these, sometimes we just gloss over this and don't get this. But what Paul is doing is he's tearing down the old order and he's saying, hey, we're going back to the way it was in creation. Back to the way it was between Adam and Eve, between this incredible union that symbolizes the beauty of Christ and the church. Second thing 
there is <clears throat> Greco-Roman, uh, there were these things called household codes. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, he lived shortly before the time of Jesus. He, he wrote a lot of lists like this, and they talked about responsibilities of husbands and wives and different people. They were called household codes. But they never addressed the responsibility of husbands to love their wives. So it would be very common if you lived in first century Ephesus, as these first Christians did, it would be very common for you to read one of these lists and see, here's what husbands do, here's what wives do, here's what husbands do, here's what wives do. You would never, ever, ever, ever read that husbands were called to love their wives. It was a male-dominated society that pretty much kept women under the heel of men. What Paul is saying here is so incredibly countercultural, and again, we can't miss this. Yes, he tells women who are married that they are under the leadership of their husbands, but then he spends a whole lot more of this text talking about the husband's responsibility to lay down their lives for their brides. The people at Ephesus weren't used to reading about this. In fact, they'd never heard of this before. They were used to assuming that the fathers had all the control or the husbands had all the control. But the idea of sacrificing yourself, of loving and putting the other first, this was radical. And that's what Paul is calling the church to do in Ephesus, to have unity in the church, to have unity in our marriages for the sake of the gospel so that when the world sees our marriages and they see that we are not divorcing one another, when they see that we are falling more in love with one another, when they see that we are faithful to one another, they stand back in awe and they say, how is this possible? And we say, well, the Holy Spirit has made it possible. Let me introduce you to him. Paul is calling the church to a different way of life. This is what happens when the spirit controls our relationships. So let me say very quickly what following the leadership of your husband means and what loving your wife means. You, maybe you say, okay, Stephen, I'm married, so this does apply to me, or I'm going to get married soon, so I know this is going to apply to me soon. Uh, what does it mean to follow the leadership of my husband. It doesn't mean that he tells you what to do about everything. Okay? Um, Sonia and I work through every decision together. So, for instance, um, handling our family finances. Sonia pays all of our bills. She handles our money. Um, why? Because I know that she is better with our money than I am. I'm not horrible with money, but she's better than I am. So what we have chosen to do for the sake of what works best in our marriage, is even though God has put me as the leader in my home, I have delegated responsibility of all of our money to Sonia because she does such a great job with it. So if I want to spend something that's outside of our budget, if I need $30 for something that is not part of our budget, I have to go to my wife and say, Sonia, could I have $30 this month? It's like, I don't know if we can afford it or not. I don't know how the budget's working because you do all that. Can I have $30? And she'll have to say uh, yes or wait till next month, right? Okay, that's an example of us working together. Now, does that mean that I'm not the leader in our home? Of course not. Sonia and I have worked together to agree that this is the way that we're gonna do things and I have chosen to delegate that authority to her. And especially when it comes to spiritual things, my responsibility is to lead in the home, to, to help Sonia and our children grow in the Lord, to make sure that we're doing family devotions together to encourage them, to point them toward Jesus. Being a leader doesn't mean being a tyrant or a dictator. Far from it. 
But Sonia's responsibility and your responsibility if you are married is to submit to the leadership of your husband, sometimes even if he's wrong. There are times when I'll make a decision and we'll talk it out and Sonia feels like I'm making the wrong call. And what she has to do is she has to give it to God and to pray that God will change my heart and do the best that she can to support me. Just like if you're an employee, you might try to talk your boss out of doing something because you feel like it's a bad decision. But at the end of the day, you have to submit. You have to follow the leadership. That's what it means to follow someone else's lead. What does it mean to love? It means to get up in the middle of the night when your baby's crying so that your wife can sleep for a few more minutes. It means being willing to change that diaper for your wife or do the dishes for your wife or give her a back rub when she's tired. It means being willing to take your older kid out on a date so that she can have a break for a little while. You're going to say, well, that doesn't work with my plans or my dreams, or my schedule for the day. That's what love is. Love is caring more about the other person than caring about yourself. What Paul called husbands to do was to lay down their lives for their wives. Not by taking a bullet for them. That's, that's what we think of. Well, I'm going to lay down my wife. I'm going to lay down my life for my wife. And the ultimate image of that is, of course, dying. But we die daily to put the needs of someone else ahead of our own. Again, an impossible standard, but it's one that God has called us to. And it only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. But let's talk about the second relationship that Paul describes in this passage, and that's the one of husbands, I'm sorry, of parents and children. Verse one of chapter six says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So, this passage shifts from talking about husbands and wives to talking about parents and children. So right out of the gate, Paul addresses children, which all of us here are children. Right? We're children of somebody. Okay? Now, uh, I don't quite know when the line stops. Like, when do you stop being a, a child and when are you a grown-up? I'm not quite sure when that is. I know different cultures define it um, in different ways. Jesus was considered an adult when he was 12. I don't know that that's necessarily binding and that we're supposed to do that in American culture, but that was certainly what Jesus did. But Paul says to children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So the responsibility that children have toward their parents, and we're going to take this to mean as those who are living at home under the authority of their parents, okay? Those who are, who are there um, living off of their parents. Their parents are paying the bills, right? So that their kids can live at home. Children, obey your parents. And then to fathers, and it's interesting, he doesn't mention fathers and mothers, he just mentions fathers. He says, fathers, don't exasperate, or some versions say, don't provoke your children. So what are the responsibilities? The responsibilities of children are to follow the leadership of their parents. Just as earlier it was said, the responsibility of wives is to follow the leadership of their husbands, if you are in a marriage, okay? Now I get that there may be many situations where, where we don't have a husband and a, and a, and a, a wife 
and kids all in the same home. <coughs> Excuse me. You may be raising your kids without your spouse present. And so some of this is not necessarily going to automatically apply to you, but we'll try to work through it as we go. Children, obey your parents. Paul quotes from the Ten Commandments. And he talks about honoring your father and your mother. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise. Back in the Old Testament, God had told the Jews as they were preparing to go into the promised land, to go into the land of Israel. He said, here's, here's some different rules I want you to follow as you set up this new kingdom, this new community. And one of those, one of many, was honor your father and mother. And this is a first commandment with a promise because the promise was, if you do this, it will go well with you and you will enjoy long life on the earth. So what Paul is saying specifically as he's quoting this is he's reminding um, those who are Jewish that they have remembered this promise that in the old days, in ancient days, God said, if you enter into the promised land and you obey your parents, you're going to have a prosperous time in, in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. This is a promise for you guys. Paul brings up this promise and he says, you remember that? You remember that principle that was explained back then that, that children are supposed to obey and to honor their parents because they are under their authority? He said, this is still a good, a good deal. This is still a good idea. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. I remember um, Sonia and I were at the Bronx Zoo. I think it was last summer. And um, uh, there was this kid uh, in line. <laughs> Excuse me. We were at the cafeteria at lunchtime. And there's this kid in line, and uh, his dad was trying to order him something off the menu. And you know how at, at the Bronx Zoo and at museums like that, everything is so expensive, right? And you get, you get this, this crappy... A piece of food that costs like $13, right? Um, and so the dad was trying to order one of the cheaper things off of the menu. And his son, who was about 12, 13 years old, just started throwing a temper tantrum. Uh, I was like, it was intense. And he started hitting his dad and pushing him. And we're all just standing in line next to him. And he's like, you don't get to tell me what I get to eat. Um, and uh, my first thought was, um, if you're paying the bills, then by all means, buy your own lunch but chances are i'm pretty sure your daddy is paying for your meals which means actually he does get to tell you what to eat i know that seems old-fashioned i know that seems like so 19th century-ish um but actually i think it's more like first century-ish paul says this is the way it's supposed to be in american culture we have placed a high value and a high premium on children I want to be careful in what I say because I don't want to be misunderstood. Sonia and I love kids, but we don't exist for them. Our lives do not revolve around our children. Our job is to raise them up, show them what a good marriage looks like, show them who Jesus is, and then to launch them out of the home, knowing that life is not about them. And that sometimes we have made kids to become such idols where we worship them. And we're so afraid of offending them. Whatever they say, we're just going to give in because this is the way it's supposed to be. We just want peace. But Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus to say there is a different set of values, a different set of assumptions that are to prevail in the church. We are to be one in Christ and there is supposed to be unity in the church. Therefore, parents and children are to get along. They're to be united. And here's how that happens. Children obeying 
parents. All right? That was the first command, the first statement that is given. But then the second one was not just children obeying parents, but fathers not exasperating or not provoking their children. Now, it's interesting that Paul only calls out fathers on this issue. I think perhaps it's because he understands that the father is supposed to be the head of the home, assuming that there is a father present, that he is supposed to be the spiritual leader. Again, not a tyrant, not a dictator, but he is supposed to be the servant leader who is showing what Christ-like service and love looks like. And he says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. The word exasperate simply means to annoy, to provoke, to irritate. Now, I know how it is, right? <clears throat> Sonia and I have two kids, a three-year-old and a three-month-old. Um, our three-month-old doesn't talk back to us. Not yet. Um, I know he will. Our three-year-old has started where she does talk back to us sometimes. And so when I am in the flesh, if I am not spirit-filled, when, when Malia talks back to me, what is my response going to be? I'm just a sinner, right? People think of pastors as these holy people. Like, I'm just a sinner, just like you. What do I naturally want to do? I want to snap at her. I want to scold her, yell at her. Go put her on timeout or do something like that, right? Of course, some parents struggle with, with violent impulses. And they do horrible things to their children, hitting them or, or abusing them. Because we have this sinful heart within each one of us. And we want to exasperate our children because we are operating under the flesh instead of the spirit. Paul says, all right, children, obey your parents. Parents, specifically fathers, don't needlessly provoke your children. Now, why was this so significant? Let's look at the next slide because I want to highlight again the difference between what was happening in Ephesus and what Paul is urging the church in Ephesus to do. So back in the day, fathers exercised ultimate authority over their adult sons. So you may have been an adult when you were 12 or 18 or 21 or 25 or whatever, but it didn't matter. Your dad was still the ultimate authority in your life, no matter how old you were. In fact, so much so that fathers were allowed to sell their sons into slavery up to three times. Not four, but you could do three. You could sell your son into slavery three times. And a father had authority over his son, even if his son was a leader in government. Specifically, they talked about how if he was a magistrate or like a judge, okay? So, so maybe, um, maybe your son is the mayor of New York, or maybe he's a judge down there at Borough Hall and he's working in the Supreme Court building. If you're his dad and you're in, living in, in first century Ephesus, you get to tell him what to do. You get to say, hey, you know, I don't like the decision you're making on that court case. I want you to rule this way. Or I'm going to put you on timeout. Or I know you're the mayor of New York City and all that, but here's what you got to do. And if you don't do it, I'm going to sell you into slavery. It was an ultimate way of shaming your adult son. And then Paul shows up with this incredible countercultural letter. And he says, yeah, children are supposed to obey their parents. But fathers, don't you dare exasperate your children. I've heard these rumors. I've heard these stories about selling your sons into slavery. 
about shaming your adult children. I've heard how you seek to exercise ultimate authority even when your sons have started their own families. He said, but this is not Christ-like. This is not godly. He said, instead of being like that, I want to take some steps back and think about before they're even out of the home, when they're still under your authority and still under your care. And at that time, at that moment, I want you to focus on not exasperating them, not provoking them with your sinful heart. What is Paul doing? Both when it comes to husbands and wives and parents and children, he is calling up a higher standard. An impossible standard, one which can only be met through the power of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Paul is saying this is the countercultural community that Jesus has called us to be. We imitate him through the power of his Holy Spirit, and it changes our very relationships. Now, the last relationship that Paul talks about. And this one is going to be probably the hardest to talk about and the hardest to understand. And to be honest, it does not directly apply to us. So we're going to work through that together. Verse number five. Paul said, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, <clears throat> treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So, Paul begins to describe another set of relationships that apparently existed within this first century church. We've talked a little bit about how this church would have been multi-ethnic, right? It would have been brought, uh, drawn from a variety of cultures, much as this church is. There would have been Jews and Gentiles worshiping together for the first time. But it wasn't just that it was multicultural or multi-ethnic, but there are different classes of people worshiping together. Specifically, there are slaves worshiping with slave owners in the same church. And this presented a whole host of opportunities and problems. I think we all get the problem, right? We're like, well, how does that work, right? You go to, <coughs> you go to, you go to church with your master, maybe because he says you have to. Or, or maybe somehow you talk him into going with you. I'm not quite sure how that would work. But you're all here together. And you're worshiping Jesus. And you're putting up your hands together. And you got slaves and you got masters together in the same body of Christ. And Paul has, throughout the book of Ephesians, been talking about how we are one in Christ. We have been put in Christ. Therefore, we are united as a family. And Paul, Paul makes it really practical and really hard and really awkward and difficult when he's like, all right. If this theological truth that I've been expounding is true, then this applies even to you who are slaves and to you who are masters. You are the same family. So then what are the countercultural implications of this? He tells slaves... 
to obey their masters. Now, this is kind of a hard pill for us to swallow, especially in America. We are used to thinking about democracy. We are used to thinking about freedom. We talk a lot about equality. Um, and so reading a verse like this is kind of jarring. I'll be honest. It kind of jars me when I read it. Slaves, obey your masters. But he says, this is what you are supposed to do. Obey them, not for their sake, but because the eye of Christ, God's eye is upon you. And he says, remember, you're not slaves of people. You are slaves of Christ. He describes this relationship that Christians have with Jesus as being one of slavery, one of servitude, one of of that we are under his yoke. It is a joyful yoke. It is a pleasure um, to, to be under his lordship and authority. But he uses this imagery of slavery. He says, know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. So he says, I see what you're doing as a slave. And Roman culture and Roman society was structured in such a way that now there were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire, 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And we'll talk a little bit later about what that slavery looked like. But there's a lot of slaves. And apparently a number of them are in the church. And Paul said, Jesus sees what you're doing. And you want to be set free. And you're longing for the day when, when the Roman Empire is overthrown or, or Caesar you know, passes a decree to set you free or whatnot. But in the meantime, Jesus sees what you're doing. And he rewards all things. <clears throat> this would not necessarily have set well with a slave. Put yourselves in their sandals. Probably wouldn't have set well with you, right? In each one of these relationships, Jesus is calling us to a higher counter-cultural standard. But then he speaks to the masters and he says, Masters, treat your slaves well. That's kind of how I'm paraphrasing what Paul said to the masters. Treat your slaves well. Because know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. And we'll come back to that in just a second. Let's look at the differences between what Paul is advocating and what existed in the Roman culture. <coughs> a few facts about Roman slavery. First off, slavery in the ancient Roman world was not race-based. Okay, the slavery that we are familiar with from modern American culture is uh, the enslavement of people based upon their skin color. It was not the way that they did things in ancient Rome. It's not the way that slavery was practiced in Ephesus. And in fact, slavery was a much more positive thing than slavery in modern times, slavery in America. There were stories of, of people voluntarily choosing to sell themselves into slavery because they felt like they could have a better life in slavery than if they were free. In fact, one king's son allegedly sold himself into slavery. This is a king's son. So we're talking about a prince who became a slave because he didn't want to pay taxes. And as a prince, he'd have to pay taxes, but as a slave, he wouldn't. So he chose to give up his rights as a prince to avoid paying taxes. So when we think about slavery, we immediately think of the, of the horrible evil that was slavery in America, in modern times. But what Paul is addressing is something so foreign and so totally different that when, when we react and we recoil against what Paul is saying to slaves in first century Ephesus, it's a totally different situation. You tracking with me? 
Finally, I want to point out that Jesus leveled the playing field. Paul (coughs) was not a revolutionary who was seeking to overthrow Rome and transform the social order. But I think he was interested in laying the groundwork for social transformation. Because look at what he said in verse 9. He says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So, right, there's 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It was just a thing that people had grown used to. They were used to this idea of looking down on this, what they considered a lower class of people. Because remember, slavery was class-based. It was not race-based in Roman culture. So it's more about, about classism than it is about racism. But they're looking down on this lower group of people, and Paul says, all right, let me be real with you guys. You have got to treat your slaves well because the same person who is master over them is master over you. We can very quickly gloss over that. We can very quickly rush on to the next verse. But what Paul is saying here is so radical. It really is revolutionary. He is saying, you guys are both the same. And you are obligated before God to treat them as your brother. They go to church with you. They are part of the family of God. If you say that God is my father and Jesus is my older brother and the people around me at church are my brothers and sisters, then this must include your slave. And you think you can treat them different than everybody else who is part of the church. But if you really believe that they are part of the household of God, then you dare not treat them differently from the rest of your brothers and sisters. And you have the same master that they have. He is leveling the playing field here. He's like, you're a slave too. You may think you're on the upper end, the upper crust of Roman culture and society. But you're a slave to Jesus. Your slave is a slave not to you, but to Jesus. You both answer to the same king. You both answer to the same Lord. You are both a part of his family. And there is no favoritism with him. Paul doesn't directly call for the abolition of slavery in the first century world. But what he does is he plants the seeds of social transformation. Because if the church starts living this way, if slave owners actually start viewing their converted slaves as their brothers and as their sisters, they're going to begin to liberate them. They're going to begin to free them because you can't live this way when you're family. You don't enslave family. And the implications of what Paul was saying would lead to this church living a counter-cultural lifestyle. So imagine the city of Ephesus, right? They got slaves. It's just a part of Roman culture. It's a part of life. But then they're looking at this, this new church, this church plan, this small group of Christians. This church was started by Paul a couple years ago. <clears throat> and in this community... Radical things are happening. Husbands and wives are actually getting along. The husbands aren't acting like tyrants, but they're laying down their lives for their brides. And the brides are submitting to their husbands. Parents and children have this amazing relationship where children are obeying their parents. And and fathers are not abusing their children and exercising their authority in gross and immoral ways. They're leading with tender love. 
And then there's this whole thing of slaves and masters. And the outsiders in Ephesus are watching this church and they're seeing that masters are beginning to treat their slaves as brothers and as sisters. And as this teaching of Paul begins to to infiltrate throughout the church, some of them are even beginning to set their slaves free. They're beginning to think through the full implications of this idea that there is no favoritism between God and that both slave and free are both bound to the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. And so what happens is this community, this family that's living on mission, they begin to operate by a different set of values. And that has tremendous implications when we think about mission, when we think about Showing the world a better way of life. Really, the only way to live. So what do we do? If we ask ourselves the question, in response to this passage, what does the Holy Spirit want us to do? Here's my answer. (coughs) Excuse me. We should let the Holy Spirit govern our relationships. We should let the Holy Spirit govern our relationships. Oh. Specifically, the passage talks about husbands and wives, parents and children. The last one, as I've said, does not directly apply to us. Thank God we don't live in a society that practices slavery. But we do live in a society where different people come from all different walks of life, and culturally, we are divided along many issues. I had the picture of the, the Peter Lang protest at the beginning. as an example Of what divides us. What Paul is calling for in this passage is he's saying, let all of your relationships in the church be governed by the Holy Spirit. Let him rule, let him reign, and he will produce this countercultural unity that you can't possibly summon up on your own. So if you're married or preparing for marriage or walking with those who are married and you're trying to encourage them in their in their walk with God, you urge them to have unity in their marriage for the sake of the gospel. If you're in a parent-child relationship, you urge for unity for the sake of the gospel. If we're coming from all different political and cultural and class backgrounds, we urge unity in the church for the sake of the gospel. Because just like this didn't happen in ancient Ephesus, this kind of unity wasn't the norm in ancient Ephesus. It's not the norm in New York today. God calls us out to be this separate, sacred community within the midst of our community that has a countercultural unity showing the world what it looks like to be governed by the Holy Spirit of God. Because that, my friends, is attractional, it is compelling, and it gives us an opportunity to join God on his mission of redeeming the city. Let's bow together for prayer. Every eye closed, every head bowed.